Welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 15th of December with me in Welsh. Recently I spoke with Francis Gassert who leads on strategy and impact at Visuality. We talked about why companies need to be thinking about impacts on land, carbon and biodiversity and what they should be doing about it and the regulatory changes that are going to be driving this forward. That's to come. First though is some sustainable business news. eyes have inevitably been on the COP28 UN climate talks in Dubai, which have concluded with the inevitable fudge in the final agreement. There was a sense of expectation management as the provisional text wasn't popular, with many nations expecting to see strong language on fossil fuel phase out that wasn't there. Compromise was reached with wording in the final text on transitioning away from fossil fuels a COP first, but with plenty of loopholes and caveats on pace of change for different nations. While the headline is perhaps a baby step forward, there were some interesting developments across the two weeks of the meetings, not least on the agreement to operationalise the loss and damage fund that had been agreed in principle at COP27 last year. The United Arab Emirates, hosts of the meetings, kicked things off with a $100 million pledge on the very first day of the Dubai meetings, closely followed by a matching pledge from Germany and then others. The fund aims to compensate primarily developing economies who are subject more to the impacts of climate change but less responsibility for it. Thus, the quick response from Germany was, on the face of it, unsurprising. The UAE's pledge is significant as it marks what is designated by the UN as a developing economy, albeit one that has become wealthy in recent history, recognising its role in the causes of climate change and the need to compensate those most badly impacted. The timing of the UAE and German pledges was in fact deliberate, demonstrating that the old world order of responsibility for climate change needs to change to recognise economic realities. The need for financial help from rich countries for developing economies to transition to renewable energy was also recognised at COP28. A new report from the Civil Society Equity Review, released in Dubai, estimates that US$209 billion every year is required to help developing nations transition away from coal, gas and oil-based sources of energy. The report suggests that 46.3% of these climate finance payments should come from the US and 27% from the European Union. Similarly to the loss and damage fund, the suggested payments are calculated on the basis of the ability to pay and responsibility for climate change. There have been concerns that developing economies risk facing challenging emission reduction targets without the economic means to achieve them, and countries from the Global South have called for those to be linked. Another significant move at COP28 was the detail from the Global Methane Pledge to drive forwards the goal to cut atmospheric methane by at least 30% by 2030. Cutting methane is the fastest way to reduce near-term warming and regarded as essential to keep a 1.5 Celsius warming limit possible. Among the measures announced were more than $1 billion of new grant funding that has been mobilised in the 12 months since COP27 that has in turn helped to unlock $3.5 billion of international finance institution investment in methane reduction measures. There are new national commitments and regulation, including from big oil and gas methane-emitting nations, as well as new actions in agriculture, food and waste. There are now 155 participating nations in the Methane Pledge. New members in 2023 include Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan and Kenya. Among a number of agricultural initiatives, the Global Methane Hub has formally launched the Enteric Fermentation R&D Accelerator with $200 million in funding, making it the largest ever globally coordinated research effort into livestock methane reduction. How the carbon markets are best utilised to help companies and organisations in their transition to net zero was another hot topic at COP28. 
The voluntary carbon market has come under intense scrutiny in 2023 and subject to criticism, not least via the findings of a paper published in Journal Science in August and previously referenced in newspaper reports earlier in the year. However, new research led by data and monitoring provider Space Intelligence, working with a group of senior scientists and academics, says that it has found major flaws in the earlier research that claimed up to 94% of Red Plus forest carbon projects are worthless and that carbon benefits are incorrectly calculated. Space Intelligence et al. conclude that the earlier study used inappropriate comparison sites in its research to estimate what would have happened if the Red Plus projects had not been in place. They also say that there was inappropriate use of datasets and significant errors in calculating carbon benefits. The authors of the new research describe the earlier results as highly uncertain and call for the paper to be retracted or heavily revised. A Space Intelligence et al. paper on the new research has been submitted to Science Journal for peer review. Coming up now is a conversation I had recently with Visuality Strategy and Impact Lead Francis Gassert about measuring impact and how to ensure credibility when doing so. You guys work with companies to measure impact, including land, carbon and biodiversity impacts. Why are land, carbon and biodiversity impacts important? So Visuality has this nature accounting platform called Land Griffin that empowers companies to measure these things. Why are they important? Well, there's plenty of reasons, right? We can talk about the doomsday facts, highest global carbon emissions ever this year, 42,000 species threatened with extinction, 70% of wildlife population has been lost since 1970, and it's mostly due to land clearing for agriculture. We could talk about the compliance drivers, right? The new EU laws on deforestation and corporate reporting of sustainability risks. We can also talk about the PR and business risk management arguments for measuring these things. These are all true and important, but I find talking about them a bit tired and tiresome. I think the most compelling reason to work on nature to measure these impacts is one of opportunity. Agriculture is the source of civilization. It's the way we are tied to the earth, the way we most directly use and affect nature. And if you're managing sourcing for a Fortune 500 food company, aside from maybe a few government ministers, you probably have more influence over the future of Earth's biodiversity than almost any other individual in the world. We can be blind to the consequences of our actions, but why not take a look at your company's power and influence, the impacts of sourcing these materials, and see what you can do about it? So instead of focusing on the importance or the moral burden or the onus of compliance, I prefer to see this as an opportunity, a gift. Few people are lucky enough to have this kind of influence over the future of our planet. And this is also where companies can truly innovate and shape the future of humanity to choose to thrive in the world that we want to see rather than to get by in the one that we're left with. What are some of these developing opportunities then, more specifically? Well, right now, measuring impacts on land and biodiversity are all, all voluntary for now. But very soon, that won't be true. So in the EU, we have the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive that's going to be relevant next year. Companies that don't act soon are, are going to risk being caught out. As it becomes easier to measure these things, they will become harder to ignore. For example, it was easy to ignore deforestation for many years until Global Forest Watch came out. And now we're all scrambling to figure out how to respond to the EUDR. It takes a lot of work to prepare and shift a company with hundreds of thousands of employees and tens of thousands of suppliers. And it's no easier for smaller firms with fewer resources. Let's come to some opportunities in a sec, but we do need to address the risks that companies run if they don't measure these things effectively. What are the key risks that you see for companies? It takes a lot of work to prepare and shift a company with hundreds of thousands of employees or tens of thousands of suppliers, and it's no easier for smaller firms with fewer resources. 
collecting the data, learning how these things work, understanding these risks and opportunities takes time. Business continuity, PR, and financial risks associated with dependence on water resources and nature. Uh, I used to work on this aqueduct project from the World Resources Institute, where we focus on measuring these water and climate risks to businesses, things like floods and droughts and supply chain disruptions that can come from these things. These are substantial to everyone in the sector, but I think focusing too much on the risks is actually a trap. Beyond these risks, for some companies, there might be a competitive advantage to locking in contracts with trusted suppliers. There's a marketing advantage to being a first mover. For other companies, there might also be hidden risks that they discover in their supply chain. You know, bad actors that could blow up into bad PR or hidden positive stories where a small action can have a wonderful result for a farming community, a species population or an ecosystem. In general terms, what your company's been thinking about in terms of what makes for effective measurement when you're thinking about your impact? So from a top-down perspective, which is the direction that we work from, not from the bottom up, I would call out three things. The first is location matters. So while the ton of carbon is the same everywhere, impacts on water, biodiversity, and society depend on the local context. You can't honestly assess impacts on nature without knowing where they occur. Second, it's important to look at the entirety of a supply chain instead of only focusing on the big commodities like palm oil or cocoa. So in our experience, there's a lot of opportunities that companies won't see until they do a holistic assessment. For example, one of our clients found that the biggest opportunity for change wasn't in palm oil, where they thought it was, but in rice. And then the third thing I would say is to measure and manage all of your impacts together, to not just do carbon, to not have a separate team for water and for biodiversity but to look at everything together because there are trade-offs between impacts. An intervention that reduces deforestation risk might increase your land and water footprint. Looking at everything together lets you make smarter and more long-lasting decisions, things that have co-benefits, things that help you do multiple things at the same time. We built our Land Griffin platform specifically to address these challenges. Of course, full traceability of every single raw material and supply chain is not realistic for most companies. It's even going to be really difficult for the selected commodities that are called out in the EUDR. We have this probabilistic model that takes procurement data that folks might have in Excel and turns it into best estimate maps of where these materials are being sourced from. So you can leverage this abundance of geospatial data that's being produced. It works regardless of the level of detail that companies have on their supply chains. If they know exact farm locations or if they're sourcing globally traded commodities, you can still manage the whole of your supply chain and all of its impacts together. And you can make forecasts and plan for the actions that will get you to your targets. The nice thing is if you happen to be a consulting firm or an advisor, this methodology and actually all of our data is fully open. You're welcome to use it for free. Let's think about some of the data points that companies should be thinking about then when considering impact. What are the specific data points that companies should measure? There are a lot of emerging recommendations and standards in the nature and biodiversity space. It's a little bit confusing sometimes. I think the guidance from the Science-Based Targets Network is probably one of the best in terms of understanding how to measure. They have guidance specifically for land impacts, carbon aligned with SBTI, the Science-Based Targets Initiative, water impacts right now, and they'll be adding ocean indicators very soon. There's a few things that they've done that I think are really important. One is that they've made sure to recommend indicators that are feasible to measure with global open access data sources. So you don't have to invest in tons of data collection to take the first step of assessment. The second is that they have guidance on how much each company is responsible for and how much you should aim to reduce. We both have data that can help you take this first step and you know already how far you should be going. 
And then finally, they're working very hard to align with many of these other emerging standards, TNFD, the CSRD, and the EU. We will have additional reporting requirements around non-financial risks, but the level of expectation or the level of detail that companies will have to report for these things is going to be much lower just by the fact that most of these additional indicators that are not called out in SBTN can't realistically be measured at a high level of detail for a global supply chain. I think the SBTN is a really great place to start. We've aligned our Land Griffin platform with SBTN guidance, so you can measure all of these indicators out of the box. And, and you can just go ahead and skip ahead to the questions of what actions can you take, what parts of your supply chain can you prioritize, and how can you meet those science-based targets that maybe your CSO just committed you to. In all of this, of course, credibility is so important. Where how do you recommend ensuring that data is credible? The most important thing is transparency in the data and in the methods. Is this something that others can inspect, can verify, and validate? Or is it a black box? I worked for many years as a data scientist. I know how easy it is to make a mistake or to fudge the data or to choose validation metrics that make your data look good. You can't hide when the data is fully open. We just published an open access data set of land, carbon, and biodiversity indicators for agricultural supply chain accounting. Everyone's welcome to use this data. We publish our data and methods openly so that any mistakes can be found and we can correct them so that anyone can check our assumptions and so that others can use and recreate and modify and build on top of it. This data is built on top of other trusted open access data sources, things from like Global Forest Watch that many folks are familiar with. And through transparency and use, data becomes credible. Of course, there's always value in collecting locally specific stuff that only you can collect yourself, stuff that, that takes time and money to collect. That you need to build trust into the data collection process. For data that's produced at a large scale, it should be transparent. Something that will be impacting all of this, of course, is shifting regulation. You've mentioned already the European Union deforestation regulation, something that everyone seems to be talking about right now. So, I mean, what are impacts of that and other regulatory changes? This is another whole a big topic. I could go off on how the EUDR is both hugely positive, I think, and also a huge distraction that's diverting resources away from big actions towards the minutiae of traceability. Companies need to know the exact locations of where a huge number of materials, commodities, not just materials, commodities, right? Globally traded commodities are being sourced from. And the reality of commodities is, right, they're fungible. That's why we call them commodities. So how can we trace these when they change every year and they put into big warehouses and big ships? It's a huge challenge that I don't think anyone is quite sure how to address yet. Beyond this challenge of traceability, it's clear that regulation is going in one direction and that the expectations for reporting on nature impacts and risks are only increasing. This stuff is getting easier to measure. This is why the European Union thought they could put the EUDR in place and have everyone comply with it this year. We're going to see more and more of these types of regulations as the data increases, the ability to locate things increases. Companies that are taking the first steps, companies that are getting ahead in this will be in, in a strong position in the future, I think. You mentioned positive side of the regulation. I mean, there's been a lot around about negative consequences or unintended negative consequences. What for you are the positives that can come from it? The biggest positive is this focus on location data. This recognition that impacts are happening in specific locations around the world and whether or not you can track those impacts of those locations. The location of that impact matters. We can see from space what's going on. 
this regulation puts that expectation in place. It does provide this extra burden of tracing, which we will see how that turns out. The fact that we need to know where materials are being produced, we need to know the context and the impacts around them, puts a different kind of lens on sustainability and reporting than we've had in the past. In the past, we mostly used footprinting, right? We mostly used life cycle assessment that comes from national level statistics. But what we really need is to look at places where these impacts are occurring. How do you see best practice in all of this developing? What are you hoping to see? What are you expecting to see? There's a huge amount of innovation going on in this area. It's overwhelming sometimes. I think the biggest trend, again, is the use of spatial data. With all the new satellites going up, we have lots of space startups, remote sensing startups, machine learning startups. With all the scientific innovation going on in this space, we have lots of university researchers looking at mapping pasture lands, looking at better detecting things at a large scale. We have cheaper sensors, eDNA, better methods, bioacoustics of of measuring biodiversity. We will be able to see, we can see much more about how the world is changing and how it's different in every part of the planet. The EUDR, as as I just mentioned, is built on this premise. And we see the SBTN and TNFD and many others calling out the need to map and locate and are building these sort of data sets these spatial data sets into their standards and guidance. So whether it's by tracing supply chains to their origins or through probabilistic techniques like the ones we built into LandGriffin and we've released openly, we're all going to be mapping more and more. Of course, on the ground action will always require diving into specific suppliers and landscapes and communities. And we're always going to be doing certain types of life cycle assessments. But almost all of our planning and assessments of impacts and risks will be based on map data in the future, I think. Okay, well, it's going to be fun finding out for sure. As you say, there's a lot changing, a lot shifting. But thanks very much, Francis Gassett, for leading us through some of what might be happening in the future. Thank you. The Innovation Forum website is, as ever, the place to go for all the usual analysis and interviews. Look out for some reflections on COP28, already published, and coming up next week, a review of what we've learned from the Innovation Forum conferences in 2023. We'll be back with the Monday briefing next week and the final podcast of the year. But that's it for now. I've been Welsh, and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.